Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we have a wonderful guest tonight coming to us from San Francisco. And I'll tell you a little bit about Laura Innes, who's an attorney and director of Simpson Garrity Innes in Jacuzzi PC in San Francisco. She's been engaged exclusively in the practice of labor and employment law for 23 years. Her practice combines preventative counseling for management with civil and administrative litigation defense. She's recognized by Martindale Hubble as an AV-rated practitioner, and she regularly publishes articles on a wide range of employment law topics. Laura Innes has been named a Northern California super lawyer, one of the top 5% of lawyers in Northern California by the San Francisco Magazine for each of the last four years. And she was featured in an interview entitled America's Most Influential Woman, for Forbes Sky Radio program airing on American Airlines and United Airlines flights January and March 2005. Laura Innes acts as a mediator in labor and employment matters, and she serves as an expert witness regarding all labor and employment matters with special emphasis on employment practices, discrimination, and sexual harassment claims, and even wage and hour disputes. She's a member of the Editorial Advisory Committee for the Employers Resource Institute, and she's a member of the Associated General Contractors Legal Advisory Committee. She's a member of the Labor and Employment Law Section of the State Bar of California, the ABA, the American Bar Association, the San Francisco Bar Association, and many more, and we're thrilled to have her with us. Thank you, Laura, for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about this expertise and knowledge in the area of employment law. How did you get to be an employment lawyer? Well, actually, the first job that I had out of college was as a federal wage and hour investigator with the Department of Labor. 
Um, and that was back in the 70s when the Wage and Hour Division, in addition to enforcing the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is federal minimum wage and overtime, also enforced the Age Discrimination Act and the Equal Pay Act. And I have to say, I actually loved that job. Um, and from there was a personnel director at the Mission Neighborhood Health Center in San Francisco and a senior analyst for labor relations and EEO for AMFAC before they moved their corporate headquarters back to Hawaii. It was after that that I went to law school. So it was, it was a natural progression for me in law school and um, in practice to continue with my labor and employment law focus. Well, you already had a great background to then continue on into the law. So we have a lot of people driving by who are business owners and employers, small and large, and we need to know what do employers really need to be concerned about when conducting internal investigations? Gosh, that is a huge area. But let me start by, by sort of outlining the broad areas of the laws, the statutes that are going to apply, um, and some of the common law principles as well. Um, it, obviously, and what's near and dear to your subject matter expertise and your listeners is the privacy issue. Um, as you've told your folks, I'm sure, a million times, our California state constitution guarantees the right of privacy to the people in the state, and it applies in purely private settings, such as an employment setting. And so the right to privacy is going to be implicated very seriously whenever there's an uh, investigation into wrongdoing in an employment setting. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, a little bit further down the road, I'm sure, about how that, that directly impacts the kinds of things that employers can look at when they do searches, when they do questioning, um, other kinds of investigative techniques they may employ. Um, but, but most specifically, employers have to remember that there is a right to privacy wherever there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. And, and that's a huge issue now. What is a reasonable expectation of privacy in the workplace? Well, the courts have generally said that a reasonable expectation of privacy extends where people haven't been told they're not private. So, for example, there was a case last year uh, where an employer had put a secret video camera in uh, uh, the office that was uh, shared by a couple of women in its, in, in its business. And the women didn't know that the secret video camera was there. And indeed, the video camera was not there for the purpose of catching their behavior, but was in order to catch the behavior of some office, uh, some after-hours office hijinks that was going on by someone other than the occupants of that office. But the women argued successfully to the court that they hadn't been told that the camera was there and that in that office they may have, um, you know, been doing personal things, adjusting clothing, um, you know, checking to see that their teeth were clean, all those sorts of personal things we do when we don't think cameras are watching us. Uh, this, the employer tried to get out of that on summary judgment, and the court said no, that they, didn't, they weren't aware that that was there. It was a private office. There was a door that could be closed. And so since they had a door that could be closed, most of us think that we are private behind closed doors. Unless there's a, a giant window into our office, we would think that, that we have some privacy. So generally, where, where employees haven't been told they're not private, they may well be private and have that reasonable expectation. 
So it's probably very important to have good policies that state what is not private. So every, so it's transparent, everybody knows, and there's no question later on. I actually think that policies are the absolute key to virtually every defense that employers are going to be needing uh, in a whole variety of areas, and very much so in the area of doing internal investigations. The kinds of privacy, uh, the kinds of policies that employers are needing in this area to ensure that they've got the right to do the investigation that they need to do include, for example, their policy dealing with um, digital information. So most employers have a policy that specifically addresses email, instant messages, text messages, voicemails, the use of cellular uh, telephones, camera phones, internet access, computer systems, blogs, GPS systems, you know, the sort of technology policy that employers should have will explain to employees in probably excruciating detail that they don't own those systems, that the employer owns the systems, that the data created on those systems belongs to the employers, that the employee does not have um, privacy in their work-related conduct or the use of those company-provided equipment or supplies. You know, and those policies can go on to address the fact that even though there may be passwords on systems, they are business confidential, not personal private, and that the systems may be subject to unannounced periodic inspections and should be treated like other shared filing systems, for example. Um, You know, speaking of, of the policy, that's one of the reasons on our email that we often have that footer. Um, Certainly lawyers always do. Uh, If you get an email from your lawyer, it'll have that footer underneath that says that the communication may be attorney-client privileged and is intended for this recipient and for no other, et cetera. Those sorts of of footers can create an expectation of privacy, and so we have to all think twice about what we do with those footers. Um, If we want something to be private, it's all well and good to have that. If we don't want it to be private, maybe that footer is hurting us and how we use that footer should be deliberative. I don't think people are deliberative enough about that. But other sorts of policies would include, for example, just the general policy about workplace inspections, so desks, lockers, those sorts of things, who has access to those, policies about security, workplace protection, um, drug and alcohol policies. It should be addressed probably in standards of conduct, workplace rules. Um, sexual harassment, of sexual course. Sexual harassment policies. Uh, yeah, that should have been at the top of the list. <laughs> That's one of the biggies, right? That's, that's definitely one of the biggies. You know, I want to tell the audience about this wonderful white paper that you wrote. It's actually a, a, a whole uh, example of policies and procedures and a, a great guide for for not only companies and managers, but also for people who are employees so they know what the expectations are. And the name of it is Internal Investigations in California, How to Uncover the Truth Without Breaking the Law. And that's by Laura E. Innes, who we are speaking with. And you can find that at www.sgijlaw.com. It's terrific. And, And I read it and found it to be extremely helpful. So let's let's get back into these invent investigations and these internal investigations. How will they arise? 
How will you, as an employer, know when you better conduct an internal investigation? Well, they'll probably arise in one of two ways. Uh, the employers these days are getting uh, complaints from employees. And certainly, you mentioned the harassment prevention policies. The California Fair Employment and Housing Act, which is our state, excuse me, our state equal employment opportunity law, uh, requires employers as an independent legal obligation to conduct investigations when they receive complaints of harassment or unlawful harassment. And the complaints of unlawful harassment don't necessarily have magic words. So an employee is not going to come to you and say, oh, I believe that I'm being unlawfully harassed by my coworker or by the UPS delivery guy. I shouldn't be picking on UPS. Any third-party <laughs> third vendor. Right. Um, you know, they, they won't necessarily put it like that. They may say, I have a problem with so-and-so or so-and-so is hard to take or so-and-so is picking on me. And employers can't sort of let that pass and not figure out what's going on with that kind of comment and should say, what do you mean? Uh, how is so-and-so picking on you? Why is so-and-so hard to take? Or why do you think this vendor or that vendor is juvenile or offensive? And find out what the crux of that problem is. And if your employee is complaining that they are being treated inappropriately because of one of the protected, legally protected characteristics, you know, the EEO list, race, sex, age 40 and over, religion, national origin, disability, all of, all of that. Sexual and orientation. Sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, then you have an obligation to do an investigation. So it could come up in that context. Someone has made that kind of complaint. Investigations also come up in the context where the employer believes there's misconduct. And so the employer may believe that an employee is taking uh, inventory, stealing inventory, stealing cash. The employer may believe that the employee is stealing intellectual property, for example, emailing the customer list to their home computer. And so um, the employer could get suspicious because of the way the employee is acting or because of other things that are going on, or they could get complaints. And that's typically how how these issues will come up. So once an employer has a concern and, and believes in good faith that there is a need for an internal investigation, what steps should the, the employer take before the investigation to help minimize the legal risks? Well, before the employer actually begins the investigation, um, there's quite a lot of planning involved. And, and Part of the problem I see with my clients is that they're often so anxious to begin investigating that they charge off without any planning and analysis and get themselves in trouble. Um, you know, in the first instance, what you're going to want to do is consider the scope of the allegations. And so you sit down and you analyze, you know, who are the alleged victims, who are the alleged bad actors, how did you get the information you got? If it came to you from a third party, how did they get that information? Um, was it by direct observation? Was it secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand? Um, all, all of that is going to be important to you. Um, it, it's also going to be important, once you sort of get your arms around what the allegations, is to figure out, is this something you have to investigate? Because it might be something where someone is complaining about behavior taking place between 
two coworkers after hours at the local bowling alley. Now, if it's not between a supervisor and a subordinate, and if it's not at a work-related function on work property or on work time, it may not be something you're responsible for investigating. Um, similar kind of issue that you have to consider how much investigation you're really required to do would be if the employee comes to you and shares information about his or her personal life. So one of your employees may be being stalked by a, a third-party non-employee. And so if they have a stalker, how is that implicating what happens at work? What are you going to do about that? Um, it may be that they have personal family issues they're sharing with you. And, and so I really always suggest to employers, before you go down that path, particularly because those non-work situations involve personal information, which is private information in most cases, right. um, that you take a step back and think long and hard before you even begin asking the employee questions. Because you may have been given some, some basic information and you want more and you start asking probing follow-up questions, the employee doesn't always understand when they have the option of saying it's none of your business and when they have to answer the question. So I don't even ask any questions before I do some planning and some thinking. And do you advise the employer or the managers to say, please only feel comfort, you should only answer what you feel comfortable with and say that up front so that, you know, you don't have to tell me anything that you don't want to tell me. And please know that, you know, what you tell me may not be able to be kept confidential because of the situation. Well, actually, I, uh, that raises kind of two questions. Um, who's asking the questions and what they say up front? I generally don't like the idea of having supervisors and managers do any of this investigation because the rules are really complicated. Um, you know, where they can step on toes and, and where they can go with impunity in, in terms of, of carrying out the investigation. And frankly, most supervisors and managers don't have the level of sophistication they need to do this without creating liability problems for the employer. So do you so, suggest the HR department or in-house counsel or outside counsel? What is best to do? It really does depend. And that's, that's part of the initial planning is choosing the investigator. Um, your criteria is that they have to have the ability neutrally and fairly to investigate and determine the facts necessary to resolve the complaint. They have to be properly trained to understand both the issues as well as what's appropriate in an investigation. They have to have some aptitude for interviewing witnesses. Um, they have to be sensitive. They have to be secure enough to ask the questions and understand how to ask the questions. And they have to have the horses as well to do it. So, for example, if the HR manager is being asked to, inter to investigate alleged misconduct of the CEO or president of the corporation, the HR manager may not have the, the horses to do right, that. Right, the they, power, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So in that sort of case, even though the HR manager may, be the, may have the, the skills to do it, you may want to use an outside consultant to do it or um, you know, an outside attorney to do it. If you do use attorneys to do it, my recommendation is that you don't use your own attorney 
because your own attorney you will always want to preserve the attorney-client privilege with so that person can defend you and advise you. Um, and the investigator, you may or may not want to, to preserve the attorney-client privilege. So for example, if it's an investigation under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, you want to be able to prove that you complied with your legal obligation to do the investigation. And therefore, you wouldn't want to say, yeah, we did an investigation, but I can't tell you about it. It's privileged. Right, right. So um, you don't use your own attorney. Whether or not you'd use a private investigator kind of depends upon the circumstances and how far afield the investigation needs to go. If you're going to be interviewing third-party non-employees or if you're going to be doing any kind of, of uh, surveillance, um, you know, sort of sub rosa kind of thing, I would use a private investigator for that. I have had horror stories, Mari, horror stories with consultants. Um, some consultants are fantastic and others are just, I mean, the biggest liability risk you could possibly imagine. Um, for example, one law firm client that we represent had a consultant do an investigation into alleged harassment by a partner. And the consultant did this investigation, and there is, of course, no attorney-client privilege, and did a report of her findings. And the report said, this is the worst case of sexual harassment I've ever oh, seen God. in all my 20 years. Oh, no. Partners better hold their breath. I mean, it was a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> So, Not very factual. <laughs> no. Choosing the investigator is really key to this process. Right, because you have legal liability even within the investigation itself. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, for, for those people who are listening, we have a lot of university students and graduate students that may be listening as well. And when they're going in to work at a company, what are some of the things that they should really have at the top of their mind in terms of being the best employee and understanding what is private and what isn't private and what they should be doing? Well, I think that it's important when you go to work for a company to really understand what their rules and, and, and regulations are. So I would really read the handbook. I mean, when we start work, we're all handed that sort of fat document with the tear-off acknowledgement page, and you sign it and hand the page back. And, and whether or not you really look at it depends upon you know, whether you've got a question about your vacation, you'll turn to the vacation policy. But most of us don't actually read the whole thing. And that is very, very important because there are so many policies in there that are going to apply to, to sort of every day what the expectations of us are, what we can expect from the company, you know, where Big Brother is watching us and what they're looking at. And, and I would read that really carefully. The other thing that I would have a fairly good idea of is what the expectations are in terms of performance and what the culture is in terms of the style of performance. And those kinds of things you're not going to get out of the handbook, but you do get from being very open to the information you're getting from your supervisors about what they're looking for and how they want it done. Because employers are going to be scrutinizing your performance and whether they do it formally in the context of scheduled periodic performance evaluations or whether they do it sort of in an ongoing coaching kind of basis, they are taking note of what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, 
And I think that understanding that you are under review and scrutiny basically on an ongoing basis in California is pretty important. And that's really what at-will employment gets to. And certainly in Northern California, at-will employment is really the standard. And that means that you can be terminated at any time with or without notice for any reason that's not unlawful and without cause. So expecting that you're under that kind of scrutiny and just being comfortable and not defensive about it, I think is a pretty good strategy. You know, people have just been graduating, and many of them hopefully are getting jobs in this crazy economy, and they'll or they're looking at getting jobs in the near future. What are some of the issues about what an employer can get, uh, what kind of background information they can get on you before you get a job so that our college students and our graduate students who are graduating right now what should they be thinking about in terms of what will the employer get to see? What rights does the employer have to see things such as the social networking sites, uh, credit reports, background checks? Could you explain a little bit about that for our students? Sure. Um, first of all, any of you that have public sites on the social networking uh, programs like Facebook and, and MySpace and all of that, if it is public and it is not by invitation only, your, your employer's prospective employers will absolutely be looking at that. And I have to say it's one of my favorite sources of information. Um, you know, an interesting case I had relatively recently, a woman was claiming to uh, not be able to come to work because she had injured herself picking up a box of files. And I went to her Facebook or MySpace, I, I don't remember which page it was, and she had this huge thing in there about having gone to a club that had a mosh pit and having jumped into the mosh pit <laughs> oh, goodness. and having gotten beaten up. And she had pictures of herself oh, and all this no. kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. And so we wrote a letter back to her saying that, you know, absolutely, here's the form. File your workers' comp claim, but be advised that we're going to be disputing the claim and that we're aware that she was at thus and such a club on thus and such a night and that she was in the mosh pit and that she had allegedly been injured there, and was she aware that workers' compensation fraud is a crime? <laughs> she fired back an, an indignant and nasty letter about, you know, were we spying on her? Did we have people following her? Were we conducting surveillance? <sighs> I didn't even respond. But two days later, her MySpace page was closed to the public. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So close those to the public, please. Exactly. Um, your mothers are saying, please. Uh, so that kind of stuff, anything you put out there in public is available to the public. Um, some of my high-tech clients, one of the first things they do is Google people who are prospective employees and find out, you know, if they've published articles, um, you know, how they've appeared in, in news articles themselves as, as news stories. Um, all that kind of stuff. You can Google someone's name and get all kinds of information about them. In fact, I periodically... We all, don't we, periodically Google ourselves and see what comes up? And, you know, you can do a Google alert that you go into Google and then you go up in the left-hand corner where it says Google Alerts and you click on Google Alerts and you can put your name in parenthesis and it'll give you an alert any time your name comes up. So, yeah, so that's happened to me. I, I do that and I have seen, you know, there's been a couple times where I've been interviewed 
uh, for some, let's say, magazine somewhere or some newspaper, and I never got to see the article, but it'll come to me. It'll come to me in a in an email, and then the URL will be there, and you can just click on it and see. So you might get a kick out of doing that. And I think for students listening or businesses or business persons listening, they could put their business in quotation marks, or they could put their name in quotation marks, and then they will get the Google alert whenever it comes up on the net, they'll see it. So that's something that you might want to do, and you don't have to just, it'll just come to you. You don't have to just periodically go out there and look for your name. It'll come to you anytime something new comes up. I just made a note of that. I love it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. But that's really important for our students to know because, you know, they just don't get it. You've been in practice 23 years. I've been in practice for 24 years. And, you know, things were different when we were their age. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we didn't have these social networking sites and now, even if you take something down, it can be archived and it can be copied somewhere else. Okay. And when you think about these YouTube videos, even those will come up if you do a Google alert on that. So now, it's that, re- that's where a lot of hijinks can be can be found in those YouTube videos. The other thing that employers are going to be doing, and it's fairly standard now, um, is the background investigation, at the very least a criminal background investigation. Now, hopefully most of the folks who are graduating from college don't have to worry about that because they haven't been out there long enough to have gotten into too much trouble. But, you know, employers have to worry about the sort of negligent hiring issues and hiring folks that may be a risk depending upon whether they've the employer is serving vulnerable populations like children or older people or whether it's sending uh, carpet cleaners into people's private homes, that sort of thing. So you can certainly expect a criminal background investigation um, and sometimes a credit history as well. Yes. Um, and the credit history is one that lots of folks write about now are a little concerned about given the state of the economy. Most of those criminal background investigations and credit histories only go back seven years. Um, and a good thing to know, and you've probably told your, your listeners this, Mari, the federal bankruptcy law, and most bankruptcies are filed under the federal law and not under state law, has a provision in it that says that it is not lawful for an employer to make a decision in employment based on someone having filed for protection under the Federal Bankruptcy Act. So someone can't deselect you as an employee or terminate you as an employee because you filed a federal bankruptcy. So that's sometimes important to know. Of course, what employers do when that's the issue is they don't make the decision based on the fact of bankruptcy. They make the decision based on the fact of crummy credit. Right. And some students don't realize that, that, you know, some, especially in the financial industry, no one is going to want to hire you if you have a bad credit report. They're going to be worried that all sorts of problems may arise because you're not good at, you know, handling money. You're not good at handling your own finances. And in this day and age, unfortunately, so many students get into hot water just by getting those pre-approved credit cards and running them up and using them for whatever purpose. And uh, so that's, are you seeing more of that with employers really scrutinizing these credit reports? I actually am. Employers are trying so hard to be able to select the best candidates for the jobs because employers have been burned by people who haven't been the most scrupulous of employees and the most honest of people, and particularly now where it's a buyer's market. 
I mean, there are so many excellent candidates on the street because of layoffs and business closures, et cetera. Employers can afford to be very, very choosy. And when they can afford to be choosy, they are doing all of these extra measures to sort of winnow it down and find out who the best folks are. And by best folks, I don't mean that in in a personal pejorative sense, but the folks that look like they're least likely to pose problems and most likely to bring strength to the organization. You know, we tell students or anyone who's looking for a job, it's really important that you see your credit reports before your employer does or you see your background check before your employer does because, for example, you can go to annualcreditreport.com and you get your free credit report under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. You can get that from each of the three credit bureaus for free. And we suggest you do it. So if there's any errors on there that are looking bad and make you look like you have not paid or that you look like you have you know, double entries or something's wrong on there, fix it up before you even apply for a job. And isn't it true, Laura, that before they can get your credit report or background check, you have to actually give your permission? That is the, yeah, a- absolutely that's the case. And employers have to comply with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which is, of course, the federal law, and the California Consumer Rights Act, which provides that when they're going to get those, you have to have notice, you have to give your permission, you check the box you want a copy, jumping through all of those hoops. And most employers are fairly savvy about that these days. But that's also something to consider when you are looking at a job and they're asking you to give them a credit report is read that. Um, read that permission, that authorization form very carefully and see what it is that they're going to be getting because they have to specify what they're looking at, whether it's just going to be credit, whether it's going to be criminal history, whether it's going to include your DMV report. And that's one where we see a lot of young people have problems. The DMV pull report shows points on their driving record. Um, You know, whether they're going to be checking your references, um, whether they're going to be checking your school records, which, of course, the other thing I would suggest, sort of looping back to the original question, be scrupulously honest on your resume. Employers are absolutely verifying everything these days. And it's so easy to do now, isn't it, Lori? Laura, because they can go in and check to see if that's really you. Did you really work for that employer? Or they can say, did you really get that college degree where you got it? Because I have had people call me with identity theft issues where people who are victims find out that someone else has used their whole identity, even their college degree, to get a job. Yeah, all of that information is publicly accessible. And it's shocking you know, how easy it is to get. The inter- Internet is a wonderful thing and, and a not-so-wonderful thing. But even resources beyond the Internet, you can get that kind of information on people. So be scrupulously honest, both uh, institutions where you were, the years you attended, whether or not you got a degree, exactly what your degree was. Right. People uh, can be fired if they find out even years later that they lied on their, that they had, uh, you know, that they said that they got some advanced degree that they didn't get. Exactly. And it's actually called the after acquired evidence doctrine. And so, for example, if you've been working for me for 20 years, and I fire you because I discover that you're a Martian and I discriminate against Martians, um, and you are suing me for planet of origin discrimination, 
I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And I discover that you lied on your resume under the after acquired evidence doctrine. If you were never eligible to work for me, you can't get damages when I terminate you. Exactly. So it can come back to bite you years and years later. Also, when we're talking about when the employer, when you do apply for a job, and and be very, very careful. This is the one thing that I think is pretty scary as well. When people apply online, do you have any recommendations? Because I've I've had people who became victims of identity theft who actually signed up for online job, uh, you know, descriptions and and job websites and their identities identities were stolen because they put like a social security number up and everything. Do you have any other advice for when you're looking for a job and you're a student? You know, I I think you need to use all of the software that's available to be sure that you're um, not on sites that are um, the fake sites because those are the ones that I think are the biggest problems. They, They set up false employer sites and they have the online employment application form, and the whole thing is just fake. It's an online identity scam. So before I would do that, you know, make sure if you've got the, uh, oh, it's not the spoof detector, it's you know, your, your internet browsing software, if you've got good, good software, will tell you if it's not a legitimate site. But beyond that, even if your software isn't telling you that the site may or may not be legitimate, research that employer before you fill out a form. Um, Use the Internet to your advantage and find out who XYZ company is and how long they've been in business and what is their URL and make sure that the URL you're looking at is their real URL and not one that's just pretty close to it. Um, Also, be sure that you don't use any online forms unless you're confident the site is secure. And you'll be able to see if the site is secure as well. And if you've got an option, don't use the online form. Yes, and and never give your social security number on that form. Put down, I will tell it to you later when I'm offered a job because, yeah. you you know, you don't have to give them the social security number until they want to really, they're serious enough to want to look at your background check or look at your credit report. And by the way, you have a right to see your, your credit report as well as your background check. So if you mark the box that you want to see a copy of the background check, they have to give it to you. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't. In fact, I specifically advise my employers don't request the Social Security number on the application. They have no need for it at that right. point in the process. Right, and it's and only it, going to put them at jeopardy as well. Exactly. If they've got it, they've got some responsibility to protect it. Exactly. We're speaking with a, a wonderful expert in employment and labor law, Laura Ennis, who's a director of Simpson, Garrity, Innes, and Jacuzzi PC in San Francisco. She's a wonderful lawyer practicing for 23 years, and she knows all about every kind of issue with regard to employment law. And this is especially important for our people who are driving by, who are employers, who are managers, and of course, our students here at the university who are hoping to be new employees. So let's go back to talk about your investigation because I think that's really important. What um, Can employers require their employees to take a lie detector test? Some people think they can. Absolutely not. Both under California law and under federal law, uh, employers are prohibited from demanding or requiring employees or applicants to take a polygraph. 
a lie detector, other similar kind of tests. So that includes, by the way, the pupil reaction tests and those similar sorts of tests. They're all absolutely forbidden. So employers can't require it. Sometimes, however, employees feel that they are being pressured to volunteer for a lie detector test. And my suggestion to my clients is you don't even allow it. Even if the employee requests it, you don't allow it. Because since you can't require it, how do you prove after the fact that there wasn't some subtle pressure? Um, my personal experience, by the way, is that they are absolutely useless. In the context of civil litigation, a couple of times in the course of 23 years, I've tried to use polygraphs where a client just wanted to be polygraphed and wanted to show the jury their polygraphs. And we've ended up not using them because they're useless. For example, you know, I had one client who couldn't even get a baseline reading because he was so hyper, he, he wasn't sure what his name was. They asked oh. his name, and he said his name was thus and such. But he said, well, my, my mom calls me so-and-so, <laughs> but my middle name is thus and such. I mean, it just it went on and on. And, oh, well, no. call me Larry. <laughs> I mean, it's just, they're useless. But you can't do that. Yeah, who needs the expense either? Exactly. What, what are some of the other uh, practices that really are not effective or are really not not acceptable? Well, secret audio recording is not only um, inappropriate, it's illegal in California, and it's a crime. So it's part of the penal code. For those of you that are trivia buffs, check out penal code section 632, secret audio recording. Um, the same thing is true, by the way, of picking up an extension phone and listening without announcing that you're on the extension. Um, the same thing is true of using a speakerphone without announcing that so-and-so's in the room with me, we've got you on the speakerphone. Um, so anytime you are using uh, the telephone wires or other digital communication method to communicate audio information without all parties to the communication having knowledge that there are other parties there and consenting to other parties is a crime. So be careful of that one. Actually, we terminated a, a employee at a client of mine yesterday for secretly recording his coworkers because he thought his coworkers were trying to get him in trouble by not doing their jobs right and blaming him. And he had these secret audio tapes and came into the HR department and was terribly chagrined to find out that he was the one who was going to be fired. So don't do that. And by the way, you've probably told your listeners this, Mari, any information that is gathered on illegal audio recordings is inadmissible in any court of law for any purpose. Right. The fruit of the poisonous tree. Exactly. You know, um, there are some states that allow audio recording if one person consents. California is not one of them. That's right. So just make sure if you even want to audio tape your old boyfriend or something, don't do it unless you have consent. Now, one thing, if, if you call up a company and the company answers the phone and says, we are recording this for quality purposes, that is their consent. And then since if you talk on that phone, you are consenting. So if you want to tape that conversation <laughs> and say that this credit card company was discriminating against you or something, then then that's okay. But you must have dual consent. There's another interesting facet to that. Um, sometimes in California, if you just record yourself, so if you're on the telephone with someone 
and you're not recording the telephone conversation. So you can't pick up anything the other person is saying, but you're just recording yourself my comments on this. Um, that would not be uh, inappropriate under Penal Code Section 632. Right, because you're not hearing the other person, right? Exactly, because you're not hearing the other person. What I recently learned is that all states don't have that same rule. So, for example, um, in Oregon, you can't even record yourself Interesting. if there are other parties to a conversation and they haven't consented. That's so interesting. Be, be very cautious about that kind of strategy. Right. And you talk about false imprisonment, too. Why don't you explain that to my audience? Well, in the course of an investigation, um, what employers have to be cautious about is requiring anyone to remain someplace they don't want to be. Now, we can absolutely tell employees that as a work rule, when we are investigating um, potential misconduct or allegations of misconduct in the workplace, all employees are required as part of our work rules to cooperate with the process. And that means that you will have to be consent. You will have to consent to be interviewed. You will have to you will have to respond to questions. You can't just sit there blank and say, I don't remember. Um, if we believe that that's a lie, we could, we could do um, uh, discipline for misconduct. What you can't do is lock the door and not let them leave. Right. So if they want to leave, you have to let them leave. They but there's leave. ramifications. Exactly. Ramif- the ramifications may be that you have failed to cooperate with the investigation. You're subject to discipline up to and including possible termination. But I can't make you stay if you don't want to stay. Right. So the, uh, the hard, strong arm, sit down, you're not going anywhere, don't want to do that. Right. Another thing that people worry about is defamation and slander. So if somebody says that this person has been doing something illegal, that could be slander or defamation if it gets out. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Okay. Um, obviously, if you say something untrue about someone, you have a potential issue of defamation. Truth is always a complete defense. And so what I suggest to clients is that they don't reach conclusions. They just state facts. So for example, um, let's say that an employee of mine, um, we believe, took some money. And we conducted an investigation because money was missing. And in the course of the investigation, we determined that only this employee had access to the money and that uh, this employee did not have a plausible excuse for what they were doing on the day the money disappeared. And we concluded that it was more likely than not that they took the money and we terminated that employee. Well, we would never want to say employee A is a liar and a thief. Right. Because that's a legal conclusion. And it may not be technically true. It, we may... It, they come to light later that someone else took the money or it was never missing to begin with it. It just been misplaced. And we would have a huge defamation problem. If, however, we said we believed money was missing, we initiated an investigation, we concluded that only employee A had access to the money, that employee A did not have an adequate explanation for what happened, we concluded it was more likely than not that employee A had taken the money and we terminated that person. Those are all factually accurate. Um, whether or not employee A took it, we don't know. We just think it's more likely than not that that person did. So you've got to be very, very careful to be factually accurate and not make conclusions because the conclusions, the name-calling, is where you're going to get in trouble. 
when an employee is terminated, and this, this often comes up when employees are terminated, what should the employer tell future employers and what should they not tell future employers? Well, um, Civil Code Section 47C provides a qualified privilege for an employment reference. So employers are allowed to tell truthful, non-malicious information to interested parties. What that generally means is that someone's called and asked. That's how you get an interested party. Um, someone's called and asked. You don't take out a billboard on the side of you know I-5 saying, so-and-so is a former employee of ours, stay away. Um, so you got someone calling and asking, they're interested. Truthful information means that you stick with the behaviors, you don't add the labels, and non-malicious generally means you don't editorialize. So you wouldn't want to say, you know, this is the worst employee I ever had. You know, my advice to you is stay away. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you stick with that rule, you're generally fine. The Civil Code uh, in Section 47 also specifically says that you can indicate whether someone is eligible or ineligible for rehire. I personally find that really confusing. Most people believe that eligible for rehire means they're going to get recalled if there's another opening. That's not what it means at all. Eligible for rehire simply means you were not terminated for misconduct. So if you applied again in the right role at the right time, maybe we would hire you again. We have no commitment to you whatsoever. You haven't been terminated for volitional misconduct. Ineligible for rehire means you did something really bad. We don't ever want to see you again. I have a question for you. What if someone is fired for embezzlement and they didn't go to police, they just fired them for embezzlement, and then the person applies to another company and that company calls? What do you suggest that that employer, the previous employer, say? Well, I actually am on the liberal side of this, meaning I believe that employers should stick together with substantive information that's truthful and non-malicious. So I am of the school that says you tell that prospective employer, yes, this employee worked for us from this date to this date in this role. The company elected to terminate that employee's employment because we believed that employee had engaged in financial misconduct. I would do something like that. And, and he's not or she's not eligible for rehire. And she's not eligible for rehire. Exactly. Yes. So I, I am of the give more information school so long as you stick with non-malicious, interested parties, et cetera. Um, the, what's called the so-called neutral reference yeah. Yeah. Is, <laughs> is the name, rank, and serial number. Employee A worked for us from this period to this period in this role. That is all. And by the way, Employers should be very cautious about passing out um, financial information. Don't verify compensation without written authorization to do that. You do not generally need written authorization for a basic employment reference check, which is truthful and non-malicious. Yeah, I worry about people, and and this happened to one of my clients who hired someone who had previously embezzled with another company, and then he embezzled with my client, and my client had called for a reference and didn't hear anything about it and was furious. Well, you know, there was actually a case yeah. in California 
about an employer who gave a substantive uh, performance uh, reference without sharing negative information, which was very germane to the decision-making process. In that case, I believe the one I'm thinking of was a school principal or teacher, where the former school had fired that person for what they believed was inappropriate conduct with a child. And the next school called for a reference check, and they gave more than name, rank, and serial number. They said so-and-so was a great administrator. Oh. He was always very reliable. So that induced the subsequent, him. yeah, that induced exactly. the, oh, that's not good. And once they went beyond name, rank, and serial number, they have to give the whole picture. Right. And so they actually had some liability to the next employer. So your client that was the second in line of the embezzlement, if they got a reference from that other company, the other company should have been more complete unless they limited themselves to name, rank, and serial number. Right, right. I think they did limit to, you know, the rank and serial number and all that stuff and just, you know, not eligible for rehire but didn't go any further. So, you know, it is scary. How about medical records? You know, we've got this medical privacy now. Well, employers absolutely cannot be providing any medical information and should not be getting any medical information. And that's for a whole variety of reasons. First of all, beyond the Health Insurance Portability Act, we have the Confidentiality of Medical Records Act in California as well. as That's sometimes called COMIA. Um, and that specifically speaks to employers and prohibits employers from giving any medical information to anyone without specific kinds of authorization and purposes. So you don't want to be giving that away. And by the way, a drug test may be medical information. So employers shouldn't be passing out drug test information. Beyond that, however, remember that employers cannot include as any part of their decision-making process any consideration of workers' compensation claims or health issues. Um, whether the health issues arise to a disability or not, employers really should be cautious in California because our definition of what's a disability is very, very broad um, and is much, much broader than the federal, the federal definition. And so if you are requesting information or getting information about health issues, it's going to be presumed that you wanted that information as part of your decision-making process. And if you include any of that in your decision-making process, you are in deep trouble. And what about when companies are self-insured? What do you suggest that they do to make sure that there is no impropriety with regard to the privacy of health information? They need to keep the self-insurance administration completely and totally separate from performance management. And they have to keep that information very, very strictly controlled. In fact, under the federal uh, Title VII, the Equal Employment Opportunity Law, you must have separate files. You cannot keep medical information in the basic personnel file. And the EEOC will ding you for that if they come out and investigate and find that your files aren't appropriately separated. So not only should they be in separate file folders, they should be in separate filing cabinets and in separate filing offices. And if you could make it a separate building, that makes me happier still. Because you should treat that self-insurance as if it's a separate entity altogether. And it should be, absolutely. Yeah. How about if you're an employee and you are called into an investigation? What rights do you have with regard to having a witness present? Well, that depends on whether or not you 
are a member of a union, a trade union, if you are uh, subject to a collective bargaining agreement because you're a union member, you have the right to have a union representative with you in any investigatory interview which you reasonably believe could lead to your own discipline. That doesn't mean that you have the right to have a union representative with you if your own discipline is not at issue. But if your own discipline is at issue, you, write to, you have the right to have your representative there. If you are not a member of a union, you actually don't have the right to have anyone else present with you. The um, National Labor Relations Board, which is the federal agency that deals with the union stuff, has flip-flopped over the years on this. Um, and there were certain periods in time when they said that even non-union employees have the right to have a representative with them as part of what's called protected concerted activity, even if they weren't union members. But we're currently in a no, you don't have that right phase. We're on that part of the flop of the flip, I guess. Um, and you also don't have the right to have an attorney present. You may think you do because we all watch a lot of television and you know we're used to the sort of I have the right to remain silent, all of that stuff you see on television. Criminal, yeah. Exactly. It does not apply in a civil, private employment setting. So, again, it can be your refusal to cooperate with the investigation if you won't be interviewed without your, your attorney present, and so you could be subject to discipline. What we mostly find is that it's the alleged bad actors who don't want to be interviewed without their attorney present. And what I typically say is that you know, if you refuse to participate in the investigation without your attorney, which we're not going to allow, then we will have to conclude our investigation without your input. And, and, and we're going to have to do this at, at the end now because, would you believe, this whole hour is gone. It's oh, unbelievable. Wow. So I want to refer people to the website because then they can see internal investigations in California, how to uncover the truth without breaking the law. You did a great job on this white paper and thank you, Laura Innes. We appreciate your time. Do you want to just give your website and we'll sign off? It's been my pleasure, Mari. And folks can find me at www.sgijlaw.com. Well, thank you so much. And we will have you back again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on Privacy Piracy. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about what you're concerned about in the information age. Good evening. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 